Good afternoon, church. I want to make sure you're with me here. Uh, we're going to be uh, opening up to God's Word here today in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be continuing in where we left off last week in Acts chapter 19 at verse 17. Uh, but we're in Acts chapter 19 this week, and really what we're doing here as we consider the Word is we are considering how God is having a powerful effect on the life of His church and also the life of the city of Ephesus as Paul is uh, boldly proclaiming the Word of the Lord, really in Acts chapter 19, as we come to look at Paul's time in Ephesus, it seems to me that Luke really spotlights the preaching ministry of Paul to such an extent that uh, you have the beginning of the chapter starting with Paul preaching to John the Baptist's disciples, then you go on from the preaching of Paul to the Jews in the synagogue, and then he goes to the Gentiles, and Luke really summarizes what Paul's ministry looked like in Ephesus in verse 10 of Acts chapter 19 by saying that this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and also Greeks. The word was having a powerful effect on the life of the people of Ephesus. And last week, if you weren't with us, just by way of review, what happened was is that there was a tremendous uh, result that was produced in both the people of Ephesus and also the believers there. And even you had some demonic influence take place. As we know, Satan does not want Christ to build his church. And so when the church was being built in Ephesus, Satan had some of his own people come and to try to deceive the the, the church into thinking that they were real uh, apostles of Christ when only Paul was the true apostle there in Acts chapter 19. And we'll get more into that review as we come into the, in the passage here today. But picking up where we left off last week, I want to turn your attention to Acts chapter 19, and we'll read verse 11 to verse 20, but really the emphasis for today begins at verse 17. It says in Acts chapter 19, verse 11 to verse 20, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with as we get to come to gather before you and, and your word. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege that we have each week to be able to open up your word together and to be able to consider what you would have for us to understand about who you are and, and uh, what you are calling for us to do and how you are leading us to live our lives to the glory of your name. Father, I pray that you would make our hearts attentive to the word that is before us here today, that our hearts would be uh, removed from any distractions or uh, anticipations of what might come in the coming days or, or weeks or months, Lord, and you would just have our hearts totally fixed upon the words in which you have before us here today in order that our lives would be continually transformed by the words uh, that are here in, in these pages of Scripture through your Spirit. God, we once again thank you for this day and ask your blessing upon our time together now as we consider your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Psalm chapter 19, God gives to us really a testimony about uh, the, the, the systematic truths concerning God's word. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 to 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
Now, just reading that, it's amazing to note the depth of the testimony given here of God's Word while also remarking upon the preciseness of the statement that the psalmist writes here concerning God's Word. When we talk about God's Word, and if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we were in the doctrine of the Word of God in our systematic theology class, you'll remember that there are really four general characteristics that are given to God's Word. In, in describing what God's Word is like, we would say that God's Word is authoritative, it is clear, it is necessary, and it is also sufficient. And in this brief synopsis of it here in Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 to verse 11, we see all of those characteristics demonstrated here. We see that it is authoritative in that the psalmist can say it is perfect, and its commandments are pure. In God's Word exists commandments from our Creator who is commanding us to, to live out our lives according to His purposes and to His ways. On top of it being authoritative, we would also say that it's authoritative in that it is through God's Word that God will warn His servants. It is clear in that it enlightens the eyes of the simple, meaning those individuals who do not necessarily have a great theological understanding of the Scriptures, those who have never been trained up in the Scriptures, those who have never really even studied the Scriptures can come to God's Word and understand its truth. It is clear to the individual as they read it. Beyond this, we see that it is also necessary in that it is more valuable than gold, it is sweeter than honey, and it is righteous altogether. And then finally, it is sufficient in that it endures forever and is altogether true. Now, I want to emphasize to you that while I have stated all of these things are indeed true about God's Word, these words are not necessarily, or even, uh, I guess what the word, that they are not um, able to be affirmed in and of themselves. As it is, anyone can take any word that has ever been said, and they can say, this is true, this is factual, you need to believe this, you need to follow this, and if enough people take it up, and if enough, pe- enough people give uh, their accreditation behind it, people will begin to believe that this is actually true such as what you would have with Darwin's theory of evolution, which we know has been taken from Darwin and has transferred into the mainstream of our lives, and so everyone just affirms it is true because, well, these people say that it is true. This is not the case with God's Word. You see, we cannot just take God's Word and say it's true because we say it's true, but rather we can affirm God's Word as authoritative, clear, sufficient, and altogether practical for our lives because the Bible is not merely the musings of man. The Bible is not the theory of man. The Bible is not something in which man has created because they felt like it was something good to do. Men have not created God in their own image, uh, you know, and they've they've just taken these pages and Moses said, well, I think this is what God is like, and so I'm going to write about God. This is not what the Scriptures are. Rather, the Scriptures are God's Word to us. Therefore, we can say that while these words are just merely words on the pages of this book that we have, you know, just like anyone else has a book and they can read it and they can say, well, look at these words that I have, we can give the authority behind them because God Himself stands behind His Word as the all-authoritative God who has spoken them. You see, the Bible is God's Word, and behind these words we have passed down and preserved for us from generation to generation what God Himself has declared through the mouths of His prophets and through the mouths of His apostles. And even more than that, we have the Word of God personified through His Son, Jesus Christ, who when He came in the flesh, lived according to the will of God perfectly in order that by His completing the entire will of God and offering up Himself as a sacrifice, as the punishment for our sins, we could have righteousness through Him. You see, in Jesus, when Jesus came, He is the personified Word of God. And through Jesus' coming, He not only revealed God's Word by living it totally and truthfully, but also through His own glory, He affirmed the Word of God even more so, as, as Peter will say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to verse 21. He says, in the Old Testament, we had the Word of God promised. We had the promises from the, from the prophets. We had the promises from, through the dreams and the vision that these individuals have. But when Jesus came, we have the Word of God more totally affirmed because Jesus came as God Himself. The author of the Scriptures came among men and dwelt among them, and they saw His glory. Therefore, we have the Word of God more totally confirmed. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." 
knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, come, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, with Jesus coming into the world to bring reconciliation between God and man, namely through the sacrifice of himself, all those who believe unto him are reconciled to God the Father and to uh, God himself, the tri- our triune God himself. But beyond this, we also know that when we believe in Jesus Christ, it is through Jesus' gift to us, the gift that was given to Jesus from the Father, namely the Spirit of God who comes and takes residence in us, we know that the Word of God is able to be applied more truthfully to our hearts in that it will lead to the transformation of our lives as we read it and we come under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who enables us to apply what we ourselves have read. You know, prior to the Spirit taking root in us and taking hold in our lives, we do not apply the Word as we ought to be applying it. We do not have that conviction from God's Word as it ought to convict us. It does not lead us to confess our sins as it often should lead us to confess our sins. But when Jesus, when we believe unto Jesus Christ and He pours out the Spirit as the gift from the Father into us, we also, we also are able to see that when we read God's Word, the Spirit will apply the truth of God's Word through leading to a transformed life life in our individual cases. This is what Jesus said the Spirit would do as He promised His coming in John chapter 16. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Nevertheless, this is in John 16, verse 7 to 11, He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, what Jesus says here is going to be the ministry of the Spirit of God as he comes, as he will lead individuals to glorify Jesus Christ. He will lead them to be convicted of their sin and to confess their sin and to place their faith in Jesus Christ himself. But he will also lead those who do not believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ to be condemned in their sin, having rejected the only Savior who the Spirit was making known unto all men. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this is precisely the work that we see happening here in Ephesus. What we see happening here as we turn to Acts chapter 19, verse 17 to verse 20, is we see the powerful word being applied to the lives of the individual believers as Paul himself is proclaiming it there in Ephesus. What we see happening here in Acts chapter 19, verse 17 to verse 20 is the sanctification of the believers here as they are moved along by the power of the Holy Spirit through the powerful, effective ministry of the Word of God as, that is, as it is being proclaimed here by the Apostle Paul. But as I mentioned last week, this is not going to jump out at us initially. As we look at verse 17 to verse 20, which I read just recently, what you'll see here here is you'll see a number of things happening, but you won't really know the effect or, or the cause that led to this effect of the things that are happening. You know, the believers are convicted here. They're confessing their sins. They are selling all of their uh, old uh, sinful practices. Their magic books are getting rid of all of this. And we're left to wonder, what has produced this? What has led these individuals to, 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 uh, to, to rid themselves of all of their previous lifestyles now that they have received the Word of God in its entirety? Well, we know what it is if you were with us last week. If you go back to Acts chapter eight, 19, verse 8 to verse 10, we see really the context that we have this passage being found in. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8 to 10, we have Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and it says, He entered the synagogue and for three mo- months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and also Greeks. And so what we have there really is a summary statement of the Apostle Paul's ministry in this town of Ephesus. And as we can expect, as we know about the powerful effect of God's Word, we can expect that there's going to be a number of things that take place as a result of Paul's powerful preaching here in Ephesus. God will bring about His intended results through the powerful preaching of His Word. And as we came and saw last week, beginning at verse 11, we saw that one effect of Paul's preaching God's Word was that Paul had his Word confirmed by God as God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. If you remember what was happening, 
happening. Paul was laying hands on individuals, and they were being healed instantaneously. And also, if they had evil spirits, those evil spirits were leaving them. Beyond this, the healing came to such an effectual state that they were taking his old handkerchiefs or sweat rags and also his aprons that he would use to clean off his tools when he was working in the leather-making shop that he was in. They were taking those, touching those to their skin, and they were being healed of that as well. And what we learned last week is that those healings are not to stand in isolation, but rather those healings serve the purpose of authenticating the message and also the messenger. And so God, as Paul was preaching his word there in Acts chapter 19, as we saw, God confirmed the message, and he also confirmed his messenger. But beyond this, what happened, as we saw later in verse 13 and also into verse 16, was that there were going to be those who were seeking to counterfeit God's word. As we go and preach God's word, an effect of that is that Satan is going to try to infiltrate the church in order that he can parade himself as an individual who is within that church. And he often does it through his demons, and his demons are those who have the evil spirits, often uh, imitating what God is doing or seeking to imitate what God himself is doing. But what we saw last week is God was not going to have any of that there in Ephesus. These people were not going to be confirmed or rather counterfeiting God's message. And so what God did was God said, this is not going to take place. These sons of Sceva were trying to do these exorcisms, and they tried to exorcise this demon out of this man. And as we saw the amusing result, this man said, I don't know who you are. I know Jesus, and I know Paul. Who you are, I have no idea. And so he jumps them. He rips their clothes off. He beats them. They're wounded, and they run fleeing from that place. And there is this powerful, powerful, powerful effect that God has on the life of the citizens of Ephesus there. Now, as we come into the portion that we are in today, what we're going to see is there is one final effect that the Word of God had on the life of the citizens of Ephesus, namely the believers. The effect that the Word of God had on the church in Ephesus as, he, as they saw these events taking place on account of Paul's bold proclamation of God's Word. As we come to this final portion here today, we're going to see, as Paul says in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, the purpose that Paul had in always preaching the Word of God. Paul's purpose in going to the people with the message of God's Word was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. see God's powerful word having an effect on the life of these individuals here in Ephesus. What does it look like? Is it just this instantaneous thing where, you know, the believers are just, you know, masquerading around as puppets. God's got them on strings and he's just making them do everything that, that he would have for them to be doing. Or is there a volition on these individuals' part to rid themselves of the evil practices that they had and to turn to the true and living God totally as they have been separated from the ways of darkness and into the new life through Jesus? Jesus Christ. What we're going to see is there are really three results that the Word of God produced here in the life of the church in Ephesus here, beginning at verse 17. And the first result of God's Word being proclaimed and, and also God confirming His Word there was that there was conviction. There was conviction in the church. There was this conviction that was produced as Paul was preaching the Word and God was confirming His message that led the church, the people of Ephesus also, to be convicted about who God was and their responsibility to Him. We read it again to remind ourselves of this. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You see, God used the situation in which the sons of Sceva were exposed as frauds and not true ambassadors of himself to bring about the conviction of many. Here were these guys trying to counterfeit God's word and, and counterfeit themselves as God's messenger. But the reality was, was God was not going to have any of that. God was going to confirm his messenger and, and the message that his messenger spoke, namely Paul, but he was not going to confirm these counterfeits. And as a result of this, this produced a tremendous conviction in the lives of the individuals of Ephesus. Now, I know as we read here in verse 17, it says that all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, had this conviction, this fear placed upon them. But this was momentary. This was momentary for them. This was not long-lived. Rather, what, what I want us to consider here in this conviction that is led to be brought upon the individuals in Ephesus is the conviction that took place in the life of the believers because it was a lasting conviction. When individuals who are unbelievers hear the Word of God, they may be convicted of their sin, 
you know, they know that they've done something wrong. They know that they have fallen short of God's glory. And, and there's this conviction of that, but the conviction doesn't lead to anything. And so with conviction, there's always going to be something else that comes after it, which we'll see here in Acts chapter 19, verse 18. But initially taking this conviction that the individuals had here, you say, what does this conviction look like? What, is, what, is it, what does it mean to be convicted by God and, and His Word? Well, in one sense, it is to be filled with fear of God, with the fear of God. The fear of God must overtake us as we are coming into the presence of Himself and also through the proclamation of His Word. It is this fear of God that is produced in the heart of the individual that leads them to be convicted or to recognize that they are not God, that they are, in fact, uh, lesser than God, and, and in fact, God is calling them to do something in which they themselves are not actually doing. It's this fear of God that these individuals have, and, and we often maybe shy away from using the word fear, but when I'm saying fear, I'm using it in the way in which the Scripture always uses it, in that there is this reverence for God that is produced when the conviction takes place. It's a reverence for God. It is a realization that God is God and I am not, and I am to be responsible to Him for something it is, something, something whatever it is that I have done. It's this fear of God that that we are realizing that God is who He says He is. And on top of this, we also note that this conviction that they had led them to extol the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It led them to extol the one who was sent by God in order that He would be the mediator for the people to bring the people back to God Himself. The Lord Jesus was extolled there. And it's interesting to note here that Luke emphasizes this point. He doesn't just say Jesus was extolled here, although that would be enough. He says the Lord Jesus was extolled here. He adds this this qualifying term to these people's reaction to what was happening here in Ephesus. He says the Lord Jesus was extolled there, which this means is they are realizing that Jesus needs to be worshipped. That Jesus needs to be uh, one in whom we recognize is all-powerful, who is the authority. He is the Lord of their lives. These are individuals who are convicted of the fact that Jesus is the one in whom they must bow before, that Jesus is the King, that Jesus must be submitted to, that Jesus is the all-powerful one. They realize that Jesus is Lord and they, they, need, they need to bring Him the praise in which He is due. As Paul is preaching and proclaiming about the Messiah who has come, he's proclaiming that this Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. He is saying that Jesus, though he died on the cross as the the punishment for our sins, taking the punishment for our sins, and he was buried in the grave, he rose again, and now he is ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is going to be the judge of all nations from every tribe and every tongue. These people are really getting the message here. They're realizing that Jesus is to be the Lord of their lives. That, that, that Jesus has not only saved them from their sins, but Jesus has also adopted them into the family of God and is calling them to complete and total surrender to Him. That He does not just save them for the purpose that they can just go on and continue in sin and live that old sinful lifestyle and do whatever it was they were doing prior to Him. You know, they got their get-out-of-jail-free card. No, He has saved them in order that they would be a people unto His own possession, a people that is living holy lives unto His name, bringing glory and honor and praise that is alone due to Him. Now, as I've said, this conviction of God and the fear of God and also of the extolling of the name of Jesus Christ is short-lived for many of the individuals here in Ephesus. Those are those who are unbelievers. Those are those who receive the seed and it gets uh, picked up by Satan or by the birds. They eat it and they go off back into the world. There's this momentary conviction for some individuals, but for the believers here, the believers here have a lasting conviction. They have this lasting conviction that they they are needing to surrender themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is their savior, that he has saved them from the wrath that was to come, that was on there, that was going to be the penalty for their sins. But they also realize that Jesus being Lord of their lives needs to be revered, needs to be respected. They need to live unto him. And we'll see more of how they do that in just a moment. But taking this idea and taking it a little bit further here, it seems true to me to say that within the Christian church today, Part of the reason for the spiritual stagnation or limited spiritual growth in the life of the church is because there is no fear of God within our eyes and there is also a failed or a failure or either a diminished view of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It seems to me right to say that the reason that there is spiritual stagnation in the church is because we do not have fear of God in our eyes any longer. And we also do not surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And why? Well, we don't like to be convicted of our sin. We don't like to be told that we're doing anything wrong. 
We like this really easy uh, Christianity which says, you know, you, you come to Jesus, He'll forgive all your sins, He's going to give you everything you ever wanted, everything's going to be perfect for you, you don't have to change, He loves you just as you are, just do whatever it is that you want to do after you're saved. The people love that type of Christianity. That's easily bought into. That's easily bought into. You say, I am saved from my sins, and I can go to heaven, and I can live however I want after I'm saved here. I don't have to worry about surrendering to Jesus as Lord of my life. You see, people don't like to be convicted of sin, and the part of the reason for this spiritual stagnation that we see in the life of the church today really is tremendously dominated by the fact that people do not surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They don't see Jesus as Lord of their lives. They see Him as Savior, and it is right He is our Savior, but Jesus is also our Lord, and we are to surrender unto Him. You see, people do not like to hear this idea that they need to be convicted of their own sinfulness and to grow into holiness. You talk about someone needing to grow into holiness, and what do they say? Well, you're being legalistic here. You're being like the Pharisee now. You know, you're telling someone to forsake sin and to pursue righteousness, and oh, that's, that's the legalism here. We don't want any of that happening within the church. That's, what that always is re- that's always the response that is met. And now, sometimes do take it a little bit too far, and they make it legalistic. But calling someone to holiness, calling someone to surrender to the Lordship of Christ is simply calling them to do what is clear throughout the Scriptures, that we would surrender to Jesus as Lord of our lives. Now, as we think about this conviction that is produced, and the reason that there's not much conviction is because people don't surrender to the Lordship of Christ, and they have no fear of God in their eyes, there are these momentary times in our lives when we're awakened quite uh, uh, dramatically to the fear of God in our eyes. This, this realization that God is God and we are not, that we need to surrender to God, that we need to get our lives right with God, that we need to no longer live in the way in which we once were living and we need to live in total subjection to Him. There are these momentary times when we see that in our lives. You take back to 9-11, uh, you know, September 11, 2001. There was a fear of God in individuals' eyes. Churches were filled. The pews were filled. People were coming to church. They were giving themselves to God. They were convicted. They were realizing They were realizing that God is far greater than they could have ever imagined, and God used that event to draw many people to himself. Other times happen as well. But do you see what, has happened? what happens after that is they have this momentary time of conviction, but then they just go back to living their old way of life and doing whatever it is that they want to do, not living to the glory of God, but now living to the glory of man. Now, why is the reason for this? Why is it that, this, that, that the church has little to no fear of God in their eyes and, and little to no understanding about the lordship of Christ over them? I think that one of the reasons is because people do not read the Scriptures. One of the reasons for this is because people have a Bible intake which is paltry at best. They don't open the Word of God. You know, they may come to a Sunday service and they hear a topical sermon on something, but they never open the Scriptures. They don't know what God's saying to them. They've never read from cover to cover what God has written in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And so as a result, they don't know God. They don't know anything about God. They know a watered-down message of what Christianity is, and therefore it produces no conviction whatsoever. Because when you read the pages of Scripture, when you open up God's Word, it leads to conviction. At least it should, as the Spirit is leading you to that. Paul remarks upon this in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. Also, I recently heard about a pastor who was preaching on the topic of fornication. He was a guest speaker somewhere, and there was a couple who had been in that church for seven years. And they went up to him after the service, and they said, Are you trying to tell me that it's a sin for me to sleep with my boyfriend uh, that I've been sleeping with for seven years now? I've been going to this church. The pastor's never said anything about it. I have no idea about this. Are you really saying that the Bible forbids us from having premarital sexual relations with our uh, significant other? And the pastor says, Yeah, it's very clear right here from the Scriptures. Now you say, Is this the pastor's fault, or is this the individual's fault for not knowing it. Well, you would say it's both. The pastor should have made it clear to his congregation in some way or another. And then secondly, the individual is not without excuse either because if they would just merely open up to the scriptures and read Hebrews 13 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they would see quite clearly that the Bible strictly forbids that cohabitation outside of the confines of a marital relationship. 
You see, what happens to the people of God when they have a stagnation on uh, growing, in, or growing in a spiritual life, what happens, or, or how this happens always, is on account of them not knowing what God is intending for them to do, not understanding what God's purposes are for their lives, not realizing that God has given to us in His Word a plan that we ought to be pursuing and following and leading to the glory of His name and His name alone. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 terrifyingly reminds us this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. You see, conviction comes when we read the Scriptures. And as we read the Scriptures, the Spirit of God illuminates our hearts to the sin that is before us, or even to the praise in which God is due. This happens as you read the Scriptures, and this is what is happening here to the people in Acts chapter 19, verse 17. They're seeing Paul, or they're hearing Paul preaching the Word of God, and they're seeing the tremendous effects that God is bringing about through the confirmation of His Word, through the miracles that are performed, and also through the uh, exposing of these seven sons of Sceva who are not actually gods. This conviction comes. But you see, what also comes after conviction is this confession There is this conviction that we all have, but as I've mentioned, there are many individuals whose conviction lasts for a brief amount of time, and it doesn't lead to anything. This is not so for the believers here. What happens next, as these believers here are convicted by the events which take place, is that it leads to their confession of their sinful practice. Verse 18 says, Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You see, when we come under the conviction of God's Word by His Spirit, we are led to confess our sins before Him. We are led to confess our, excuse me, confess our sins before Him, recognizing that we have sinned against Him and Him alone. And sometimes this can even happen publicly, as we see happening here in Acts chapter 19, verse 18. These individuals are realizing the conviction of their sin. They see that these evil practices that these sons of Sceva are doing, namely the exorcist here, they're practicing their divination and their magic and all sorts of, of, uh, of abominations to the Lord, they realize, wow, we're still participating in this ourselves. We're convicted of what we're doing. But they don't just stay convicted and say, well, we'll just keep it and you know, we'll, we'll cover it away. No, they say, we're going to confess what we've done and we are going to give ourselves to God more totally. You see, sin has its influence in every city that you go into. Every city, sin has its influence. You can see the effects of it everywhere. But in many cases, certain cities have sins which are more dominant than others. In the case of the Thessalonians, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you know that Paul says their really dominant sin in their life was idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, here in Ephesus, the sin that these individuals were often domineered by was the occultic sin. The occult, uh, those things that are related to witchcraft or voodoo or necromancy or magic or spells or crystals or divinations and so on. They had the occultic practices, which was their vice that they had. They were constantly given over to the vice of the occult, magic practices or anything else related to that. Now, we know this both from the account that we'll read of here when we, come, when we come to verse 19, and they begin to burn all of their magic books. But we also know this from history. There's a number of ways in which we can know that Ephesus was dominated by the sins that are often affiliated with the occultic practices of individuals. In one such sense, the term Ephesian writings in history was often synonymous with, term, with the uh, occultic writings or with magic books. You could say, I've got an Ephesian writing, and people would say, oh, you've got a magic book. That's how dominated these individuals' lives were by these magic practices, so much so that the word Ephesians writing came synonymous with simply saying you've got a magic book in your possession. Also, in uh, well, whenever Shakespeare was around, I think the 1500s, Shakespeare even knew of the occultic practices of the Ephesians. He writes this about them and about their town. It's in the uh, Shakespeare, it says Shakespeare sums up their reputation in his Comedy of Errors play, if you're familiar with that. He says, they say this town is full of tricksters, as nimble jugglers that deceive the eye, dark-working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, praising charlatans, and many such like liberties of sin. This is Shakespeare describing Ephesus. This is Shakespeare describing the sins of this town that were taking place some 1,500 years before Shakespeare even wrote about them. Ephesus was plagued, was plagued by the occultic sins 
of their day. And you can expect that anyone who had been converted to Christianity from whatever practice they had come out of would find themselves still having some lingering effects of the occultic practice that they would have participated in. This was really a cultural thing. It wasn't really something that was hidden. It was not something that you know, they kind of said, well, we're going to do this but behind closed doors. This was praised. This was the culture of their day. This was tradition. This was what they were raised up in. These were individuals who had this about their lives totally and completely. And so we can, we can expect that because this was a dominating sin in their lives, that there was going to be some lingering effects of this type of sin. And on account of this, that as the conviction occurred, as God brought about the conviction through His Word and through the events that took place, these individuals came and they confessed their sins. They have said, as we read in verse 19, or as Luke tells us, they came confessing and divulging their practices, their practices being, being dealing with uh, things of the occult and the like nature of that. These were individuals that were convicted of their sin, and they went before the presence of all and said, we need to do this no longer. This is anti-God. In fact, this uh, d- 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 uh, just defames the name of God. If we are saying that we are going to be glorifying God, we cannot also do that. We cannot serve God and magic. We must serve God and God alone. And if Jesus is Lord of my life, I am going to get rid of whatever, whatever would uh, 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 mess with my lordship, proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, anything that would prevent me from submitting to the lordship of Christ, they said, we are getting rid of it. Totally. Now, doing this was twofold. Doing this, this confession was twofold in the lives of these believers. In one sense, it was before God. In one sense, we all must be confessing our sins before God. It is paramount that we do that because as we confess our sins before God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says. These people confess their sins before God because they note and they learn from Paul himself that what they have been doing is sinful. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 to 14 describes the occultic practices as an abominable practice before God. It says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. You shall not listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, before God, they were proclaiming to God that they were surrendering to His total control. They were revering Him. They're saying, God, we know that this is sin. We will have it in our lives no longer. But also, it was, to be, it was confessed before the townspeople in the public, in the presence of all the people of Ephesus. And I believe that part of the reason for this was that they were declaring to the townspeople that the magic in which they had once revered, the magic in which they had, in which they had once submitted their lives to, they now saw it as worthless. They saw this magic as totally worthless and that they would have nothing to do with it any longer. And it's interesting to think about this here because there was this superstition that the Ephesians had concerning the magic and its spells. As it says here in verse 18, they were divulging their practices. This is not merely to say that they were performing these magic spells, but they were also telling of how they were doing these magical spells. They were divulging their practices. They were giving their secrets away. And what was this? There was this idea, this superstition was, if you told the practice, or if you told how you did this magic trick, it would lose its power. And so for them to do that, they were, they were telling the people of Ephesus, listen, these magical things are powerless totally once and for all. These magical spells that you are doing, these magic things that you think are powerful are in and of themselves absolutely useless. This is going to bring a riot. It does bring a riot in verse 21. You'll have to come back in a couple of weeks to hear about that story. But they are saying before all of the people in the town that these things are wicked and they will not have anything to do with them whatsoever. And so they confessed their sins and revealed the trickery of their ways. This is something that we ourselves can do. I I doubt that any of us uh, are dealing in the occultic practices, but if we have sins that are plaguing us or sins in which we are giving 
ourselves to. We can confess our sins ultimately to God, and we must be confessing our sins daily to the Lord, but we also can confess our sins to one another. This is the practice of Scripture. This practice is encouraged all throughout Scripture, in fact. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And also, in what I think is a very vivid account of what happens when we are not confessing our sins, turn to Psalm chapter 32, verse 1 to verse 6, where we see the psalmist remarking upon the fact that as he was not confessing his sins, not only did he have no forgiveness before God, but also he found himself silently wasting away because of the shame in which he felt for the sins in which he had done. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He says, when the judgment comes, you will not reach God. In the rush of the great waters, as it was in the days of Noah, you will not reach him. But as the time is the time of salvation today, confess your sins to God, and he will forgive you as you place your faith in the name of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But on top of this, what the psalmist says is really picturesque of what we ourselves probably face in our lives this, this, uh, this, 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 this wasting away within ourselves as we have these sins in which we perform, in which we feel shame, in which we do, in which we constantly do, and we say, why, why do I keep doing these things? And, and you're just totally burdened by the weight of your sin, even though you've been forgiven by God from your sins, knowing through the blood of Jesus Christ our sins are totally forgiven, but still there is this wasting away that occurs as we have these, uh, these uh, secret sins about us and that we are not willing to confess to one another. What the people of Ephesus did is, a, is an example that we also can follow. We can confess our sins to, to one another because we know that there is freedom in doing that. And as we do this, I think that you will find that others may be struggling with the same sin as you are. And you can read it, Scripture together. You can pray together. You can become accountability partners together in order that you yourself would be able to have individuals who are helping you through this life to be able to forsake the sin that so easily entangles us. I say you can read the Word together because we know that God's Word brings freedom. It brings freedom from sin and, and leads us into the paths of righteousness. James chapter 1 actually tells us this. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. You can mark it in your Bibles, highlight it, whatever you want to do with it. This is a wonderful verse for us to be considering about the Word of God. It says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who lives, looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, he says here, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the perfect law of God. As we look into God's word, it brings freedom to our lives, freedom from the sin in which so easily entangles us. And on top of confessing our sins to one another, what we can also do, and this is something that is brought out by this text as well, is we can speak out against the evil of that sin, which is what the people in Ephesus were doing. They were not only confessing their sins, but they were speaking out against the evil of that sin, really giving a testimony of the dangerous practices that they were once participating in. If we have been uh, uh, freed from a particular sin that has entangled us for a time, not saying totally free, we still will struggle with sin, but if we have been able, by the Spirit of God, been able to overcome this temptation that was so often just gripping hold of us and we can do nothing about it, and yet God has given us freedom from that, He's broken our chains from that and led us to rid it from our lives, we can also be a spokesperson to other individuals, to believers, to show them how truly sinful those practices are in order that we would lead them to a greater relationship 
relationship with God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. David does this in Psalm chapter 51, and I encourage you to read it here when reflecting upon his sin with Bathsheba. There is this constant uh, renouncing of sin, both in the presence of God and in the presence of others, and also leading people to be led away from that sin in order that individuals will be able to draw nearer to God through His Word. Now, moving on from this, we see the resulting freedom that takes place from their confession of sin. And this resulting freedom that takes place is best summarized in a word which keeps with the seas that we've been doing here for our outline. It leads to the consecration of these individuals. If you're not sure what that word is, I know it's an old word. You have conviction, confession, consecration. We could also say that it leads to the holiness of these individuals. It leads them to be more set apart to God and freed from the captivity that they were, they were kept in in the world system that they were finding themselves breaking out of. This is in verse 19. It says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You see, these pictures, this scene that these pictures, that these pictures that this scene gives to us here quite vividly demonstrates the freedom, the freedom from this sin that these people now have in their lives. They did not merely, they were not merely convicted of it, they did not merely confess it, but they got rid of every trace of it from their lives. Sure, they could have come and taken it up at a later time, but what they wanted to do right there at that moment, there and now, they were saying, I know this is sin, I know that I need to rid this from my life, and I'm going to take every step to ensure that I can do it. And so they had this public bonfire, you know, you get a hundred gallon drum, and you just start throwing all of it in there, and you just set it ablaze so that you can never return to the vomit in which your sin often leads you into. You see, what they do here is they they burn any remaining evidence of this sin from their lives. They purge it from their presence, wanting nothing to do with that lifestyle any longer. Negatively, because they knew it was sinful, but positively, because they knew that it was preventing them from growing in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. They realized that twofold, this was sin, and it needed to be eradicated from their lives. How could they who had been cleansed from sin continue in sin any longer, as Romans chapter 6 reminds us of? And on top of that, they knew that as they removed that sin from their lives, they would be able to draw nearer to God by grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this, these books that they burned here, you say, what does this look like? You know, pick, uh, describe it for me here. I'll describe it as best as I can. As you know, I wasn't there, but I'll describe it as best as I can. We have this picture as these individuals, they're in this town, and this event has just taken place where the sons of Sceva are fleeing from the, from the town, naked and exposed. Peter or Paul is proclaiming the sinfulness of those practices, and on top of that, the individuals are there listening and watching all of it take place. Well, they get this idea to have this public bonfire, and they say, we're going to get rid of all of the magical practices in which we ourselves have. And so they have these magic books, and there still are some magic books from Ephesus which are preserved in a number of museums, and they have these writings in them and weird symbols and all their incantations and things, and so they're bringing those books, and they're throwing them in the fire. On top of this, what I learned from the history of these people of Ephesus is that they also wore these magic spells around their neck, and they had it in sort of like an amulet, and so they could just, you know, have it on them. That was kind of their protection. It was going to keep them safe from whatever evil spirits would make come, and so they have this amulet on. They take their amulets off and they're throwing those in the fire. They're taking anything that is related to these magic books or magic spells or parchments that they would wear around their neck and they are burning it once and for all. This is a wholesale cleansing of evil from the Ephesian church. And in order that there be no residue left of this sinful practice, they burn it all up. And what happens here is really tremendous because what happens here is the church begins to no longer look like the world, but rather it begins to look like the church in which God had intended for it to look like. The church no longer can be confused with the world. They can no longer be seen as those who have one foot in the gospel and the other foot in the world, but rather they are being conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. They are, as 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us of, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 to verse 11, we see what the church is. We see what God's people are. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Could you imagine these believers going through this town trying to evangelize and, and calling out the occultic practices as sin? 
But the individual is like, you're saying this is sin, but you've got a bunch of it at your house. You know, what are you, what are you trying to call me out for this, you hypocrite? They're saying, you're telling me this is sin, but yet you're still participating in it totally. You're not living with a way in which you are saying I should even live, so why should I listen to what you are saying? These people are saying, we want to have a witness in our community that says not only are we convicted of our sin, not only do we confess our sin, but we remove any trace of that sin from our lives. Now, it's interesting also to note here this tremendous amount of money in which this, uh, these products were worth. He says, Luke says here, in verse 19, that they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. You say, how much money is that in our day? Well, I did some looking, and I, and I did my best to find some descriptions of this, and there's two possibilities of how much this stuff was actually worth. There were two forms of currency within the Greek, uh, within the Greek culture or the Roman culture. You had the denarius, and you also had the drachma. If this silver here refers to a denarius, it amounts to 50 50,000 in five days' wages for an individual who was working. An individual is paid roughly a denarius a day. And so for the individual to have accumulated 50,000 pieces of silver, they would have had to work for 50,000 in five days. How long is that? 137 years straight without ever taking a day off. This was a valuable, valuable fire that these individuals had lit up. Now you say, well, what if it was actually a drachma here? Well, if it's a drachma, I found some information on this, but what I did find wasn't really clear totally. One such estimate placed this, placed this value at about $216,000 in our U.S. currency here in the year 2023. And so whatever it was, it was a large, large sum of money. And two thoughts came to my mind here as I was thinking about this. The first thought was this. Why not, instead of burning these magic books, did they not instead sell them and use the profits to be able to, you know, furnish their own ministry work? An individual might say, this is a lot of money. Why waste it? You know, they saw it as nothing. This is worthless, this worthless pieces of paper. It's nothing. Why not, just, why not just sell it and get the money for it, fund the church, build a big church where people could come and worship God, you know? Why not do this? As I was thinking about that, I wasn't saying that I would do that. I was just thinking, why didn't they do this? As I was thinking about this, this is the same attitude that Judas himself had when it came to the washing of Jesus' feet when he says, why'd you waste all of that? Sell it and give it to the poor. Sell it so that we can use it here. You see, the reason that they did not just sell these, in, these things for profit in order that they could give it to the church was because not only did they not see these things as sinful and no longer necessary for themselves, they saw these things as what they were, unnecessary for anyone. And so they didn't want anyone getting a, a hold of these parchments or these books. That's why they burned them up totally so that they could be totally ridden from that society in which they were in. They were trying to not only purge their lives, but to purge the evil from their society. They did not want to have any trace of that sinful practice left over whatsoever. They sought to dispose of it in order that God would have the glory alone for himself. The other thought about this that I considered as I was considering the amount of money, especially considering the extent of this money here, I was thinking about, you know, here, we say, here we're saying that the powerful effect the Word of God had on these individuals led them to burn up all of these items that are worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. Here we're thinking about this and we're saying the powerful effect that the Word of God had on the lives of these individuals led them to burn a total amount of property that would have equaled about 137 years wages for them working consistently nonstop. How do we relate that to our lives here today? How are we to think about that in our lives here today as we come to uh, consider and to lift up and to proclaim our love for God's Word and the effect that it can have on our lives? You see, we can often say, I love God's Word, I uphold God's Word, I want God's Word, I know that God's Word is the only Word in which I need for my lives, and we often will say that with our lips, but how many times are we unwilling to get rid of something that is keeping us from God's Word because we see it as also maybe not in equal value, but still valuable to us to a point where we're saying, I'm not willing to get rid of that just yet. As I think about these individuals here, as they go to burn these items, they're burning them because they are saying, we have God's Word now. We don't need this stuff any longer. And God's Word was the most valuable, valuable thing that they could ever have. So they burn it all up, getting rid of it, not worrying about its value, the 50,000 pieces of silver. Thinking about this, we can read uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10 and verse 11. He says, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. 
Psalm 19, verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Another passage especially relevant to the one before us today is Psalm 119, verse 72. It says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. I think one of the reasons that we are not led to rid these sinful practices from our lives or the things in which can lead us to sin is because these things still hold some sort of inherent value to us. They hold this inherent value to us. We are weighing it on a scale and say, well, I love God's word. I know that this is leading me to sin and I love God's word and I know this is leading me to sin. And we just are constantly weighing out these two things and and not realizing that God's word is far more valuable than anything that we can have. And if we get rid of it, who cares? Because we have God's authoritative word. Thinking about how valuable God's word ought to be for our lives, I was reading through the scriptures and nowhere in the scripture is there ever a price placed on, the, on, on how valuable God's word is. There never is. It's only compared to things which are valuable and when compared with those things, those things pale in comparison to the preciousness of God's word. And that is because God's word is invaluable. And so thinking about these people burning up these magic books that amounted to about 50,000 pieces of silver, they didn't see it as a loss. They saw it as a gain. They didn't see it as losing 50,000 pieces of silver. They saw it as a gain, a gaining of Christ and a gaining of a, a freedom from these sinful practices in order that they could give themselves to God's word more totally as Paul proclaimed it there in that town of Ephesus. There are many times in our lives when God, by His Spirit, uh, through His Word, will convict us of our sinfulness and lead us to the confession of our sins before Him, and yet we fall short of taking that last step, which is removing the things from our lives which expose us to that sin, or which continually lead us to possibly be tempted into that sin altogether. Now, I'm not saying that we have to have a wholesale burning. We don't need to get a bonfire or a big burning pit here and burn up a bunch of stuff. Although, if we wish to do that and the Spirit leads us, then may we do that. What I am saying is this. We, at the very least, need to be ridding ourselves from the things in our lives that are leading us into the temptation or that are tempting us to sin and thereby leading us into the sinful practice which so often entangles us in our lives. No, we may not be able to burn it up completely because there's other things that we might do with it, but at the very very least, are we putting up roadblocks in our lives so these things do not continue to lead us into sin? What I mean is this. While I cannot burn my phone, I can refrain from taking it into bed with me at night when I know that I am tempted to just browse aimlessly through a number of different social media pages looking at things that don't really matter. I can't burn my phone up, but I can certainly leave it in the living room or I can leave it in the kitchen charging, and I don't need to bring it into my bedroom. I don't need to bring it into a place in which I should be either going to sleep or memorizing or studying God's Word. In fact, if I don't want to bring my phone, let me bring the Bible in there. That's a good idea. Bring the Bible into bed with you in order that you do not find yourself constantly victim of the temptations that come from having your phone with you at your bedside. Another thing we could say is we may not be able to burn our televisions, but we can turn off that sinful television show and watch something else. Simple to do. There's many other things we can watch. There's many other things that we can learn about. I was uh, up this morning or a couple mornings ago. I couldn't sleep around like 4 a.m., and I'm just flipping through the channels, and there's nothing really to watch. And, and I'm just flipping through the channels, and I ended up coming off of this uh, television program uh, called Answers in Genesis. And it was a wonderful program which was teaching about the biblical account of the, uh, of the creation story in Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 11. And what it did was it prepared me to be able to consider God's Word over and against the theories of evolution and all the other sorts of ways in which people have come to terms with how the earth itself was created. There's some things on television that we can watch. And so you say, this is causing me to sin. This is leading me to be tempted into sin. I'm going to turn it off, and I'm going to find that program that Pastor Dakota was talking about there. Now, you don't have to be up at 4 o'clock to watch it, DVR it or something, but use your time more wisely with the things in watch which God has given to you. Another thing is we may not be able to burn our CD players or whatever it is we listen to music on, but we can turn off those lyrics in which are suggestive to us and lead us into sin or to provoke us to anger, which was often happening to me when I was listening to rap growing up. You listen to it, you get angry, you want to start punching people and fighting people. I don't need to be having that in my life. And so I can turn that off. I can listen to something else because God has given to us. God has given to us many wonderful things in which can lead us to be able to live totally uh, totally to His glory. 
Now, those are just a few examples. Another one we could say, if I have a problem with drunkenness, I'm not going to go to a liquor store, or I'm going to stay away from the alcohol section in the grocery stores in which it is readily available to individuals. However, the Spirit applies it to your life. We must be taking steps in our lives, as the people of Ephesus did here, to not only confess our sins and be being convicted of them, but also to have our lives consecrated by God by getting rid of the things that are leading us to sin. Getting rid of them totally. We don't need them. We don't need these things anymore because we have God and His glorious, glorious Word. Listen to what Colossians chapter 3 says here as we close out our time together. Colossians 3 verse 5 to verse 17 has this wonderful truth for us that I want to close our thoughts out here with us uh, in this time. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we are. Colossians 5 and star, 3 starting at verse 5. It says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If there is anything in your life that is preventing you from giving thanks to God by it, you must put to death today. Get rid of it today. It's not worth anything. It's worthless. Even if it has a value as much as these people in Ephesus had, live out the example that we see happening here from the people in Ephesus. Get rid of it knowing that it is not valuable to you any longer. The only thing that is valuable is what God has said through His Word. And I remind us this also. It's not legalistic to call for us to be growing in holiness. It is rather the character in which God is bringing about in each of us by the power of His Spirit through His Word. Growing in holiness is the plan of God that He has given to us as He saved us from our sin. God saved us in order that He would lead us to good works, thereby bringing glory to His name. And so this is not legalistic for us to get rid of these things. This is not to say, well, you can't do this any longer. No, 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 I'm not waving my finger at you. What I am saying is that you have far more precious value in God's Word than any of these things, and so you must find yourself ridding it of your lives. Now, Uh, One final thought here before we close in prayer. How do we know that this is God by His Spirit using His Word here to do this? How do we know that these people have not just, you know, surmised in themselves, you know, let's just get rid of this. Let's just do all of this. Let's just, you know, cut it out of our lives totally and completely. Well, look at the summary statement here in Acts chapter 19, verse 20. It says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This passage pulls together, or this statement pulls the passage together and summarizes and emphasizes the powerful effect God had on this community as His Word was proclaimed there. It was being magnified throughout that place. Lives were continually being transformed by the proclamation of God's holy Word. Now you say, how do I apply this passage here? Hopefully you already know, but I leave you with this final verse here by way of application. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You say, how do I apply this passage here today? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You say, what does this mean? What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Well, there's two things. There's two statements that are brought out by what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3. To let the word of Christ dwell in us richly means that we are to have the entirety of of God's Word in our, in, in, in our reading, uh, uh, voca- in, our, in our vocabulary, and also in our, in our reading list as we read through the Scriptures. It's not saying, I'm just going to read the New Testament, I'm going to read the Old Testament, I'm going to read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The Word of Christ will dwell in me richly. You say, how does that, how does that become the case? Well, as Christ said, the Scriptures spoke of Him, whether the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, the New Testament,
Testament, the Scriptures speak of Christ. And so if the Word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, we must be reading all of God's Word. And you say, well, what does this word dwell mean? What does this mean? How long is this going to take? What am I to do here? What does this look like? What does dwelling on God's Word look like in my life? Well, this word literally means to make one's home or to be at home in that individual. And so reading it with that translation, it says, let the Word of Christ make its home or take up residence in you richly. It is this idea that the Word is going to dominate every area of our lives, that the Word will take up its home in us. It will live in us. It will be all that we breathe, all that we do, all that we think of, all that we talk about the word will dwell in us richly and as we do that we know the everlasting blessings which will come forth thereby as we see from the example of the ephesians and as we take up the word of god we know that god's word is sufficient for our lives and so church may the word of christ dwell in you richly may you read it daily may you come to us with any questions that you have about it if you're concerned with uh, what does this mean or what does that mean may we be a church that lifts up the word of god knowing that it is god's authoritative word to us to live by and to also so draw others into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with once again to be able to come and consider your holy word. Lord, we know that before us is, is many, many pages. Lord, before us there is so, so much truth. It's often overwhelming. In my life, I know it is. I don't even know where to start. God, would you lead us by your spirit today to, to begin to open up your word and, and to read it and to meditate upon it and to just uh, have it as the total authority in our lives, God, that our lives would be totally uh, overtaken by what you are leading us to do in your word as your spirit illuminates to us uh, the scriptures. God, I, I pray that you would help us to be doing that. I pray that you would lead us to be opening up the scriptures. God, I pray that you would be having us uh, grow in greater unity together as we talk about what we're reading. God, I pray that we would be a church here at the First Baptist Church of Hollywood that would be known for not conforming to the things of this world or the current ideas of our day, but rather to be continually consisting in your word, Lord, which we know is living and active. It is eternal. It does not change. It will not pass away. God, may we know you more greatly by your word today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Gates. Church, we're going to sing one, one more song before we go. Please sing with us. With beans. That was great, Pastor Gates. Philippians 3.8, I 